Hello and welcome to the Connected Community. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Philippe Coquette as he shares his extraordinary tale of what it was like being within a cult for 25 years. At the age of 25, Philippe was seeking spirituality and enlightenment and landed in the most loving, beautiful, and nurturing environment, soon to turn into a twisted tale with a narcissistic leader who exploited and manipulated his community in financial, emotional, and sexual ways. This is Philippe's story of self-discovery, healing, and resilience as he fled his community and had to find his own path. Today, Philippe does a one-man show as he sings, acts, dances, and does burlesque and cabaret, sharing a message of body positivity, sex positivity, and self-acceptance. I hope you will find today's episode enjoyable and inspiring. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast, a place to explore possibility through mindfulness, movement, and self-discovery. Our intention is to deliver insight and inspiration while fostering conversations that are genuine, unfiltered, and deeply human. We hope you will enjoy today's episode. Hi, Philippe. I'm so excited to see you this morning. Hey, Nikki. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so great to see you too. Been, and you're in Scotland. It's been a while. I'm just wondering what time it is because you're in Scotland, right? Yeah, it's just five o'clock in the afternoon in Scotland. Okay. All right. So quite a time difference. Yeah. So before we got on, we were chatting a little bit about how we met. And so I'd love to go to that really quickly because it's such a fun, such a fun story. And our memories are totally different. <laughs> yeah. You want to tell yours first or you want me to tell? I'd love well, to tell mine. Okay, mine's, less, mine's less fun. So although it was fun, <laughs> I remember being with our friend, uh, Max and I were with our friend, David Moreno, who I have all kinds of weird stories about how we met as well. Very different stories. And uh, he, we were with him and we were in Berkeley, I guess or Oakland, and he took us to, we were walking and we went into Lululemon, which was pretty new in those days. It wasn't like a huge super chain. It was just like a, like maybe that store or something. Anyway, and you were working there and he said, this is my dear friend, Nikki, and she teaches yoga and we, and, and I just, you just have to meet her. And so I remember just us standing and talking in Lululemon for a really long time. Yeah, and I don't remember That's that at first. all. <laughs> I remember, um, so my husband has a little bit of a different memory that we met through Max, and it was that David Marino connection, um, and that we me ran into each other at Berkeley Bowl and had this long, long chat, and we're like, this is ridiculous. We need to, We need to get together. We can't just stand in the middle of the grocery store and chat forever. Um, and then we decided to meet down in the Castro district and we met at this tea house. And I don't know if we knew where you were going before the, before we were meeting, but you and Max were decked out and I'm pretty sure you had assless chaps on and a little leather, little leather cap. And you guys were coming back from the Folsom street fair. And, um, and you were adorable. 
And we're in our boring street clothes and we sat and had tea in the tea house for hours and hours and hours. I remember the, I, just, I just didn't remember it as the first time. Yes. Yes. And I'm so glad. So that was, that was in 2010. So that was a, a while ago. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I'm so happy to connect with you and I think you have so much cool stuff going on. Um, yeah. And so I'd love for you to just share like where you are right now and what you're doing right now. Right now I'm at the Edinburgh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is this gigantic, huge millions and millions of people seeing thousands of pieces, works of theater, uh, comedy, theater, music, dance, um, cabaret and burlesque, which is my, my piece. And I'm doing a, a one person, a solo show that is autobiographical and it also has a lot of, um, music in it I, so yeah i'm doing this solo show that i've been working on for a couple of years and in it i talk about my life as a child actor in new york city and then as a teenager in hollywood of the 70s going to discos and all that and then being in a spiritual community slash cult for 25 years and then starting work as a sex worker at 49 years old. And, and how, um, yeah. How old are you now? 65. 65. Yeah, isn't that crazy? That's crazy. <laughs> I'm now a senior citizen. Oh, my gosh. Course, well, what's weird is that makes you a junior citizen. There we go. Nobody says that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm in training. Right. Um, and so what are you, what do you say you're primarily doing now? Is that you're acting and, and, um, performing and that's your career right now? Yeah. I love it. And yeah. so it's, it's hi ho, hi ho, off to work we go. Yeah. It, well, it's off to work. It's off to work. I go off to work. I go. I changed it a little bit from the Disney. <laughs> oh, that's, that's true. <laughs> the Disney seven dwarfs song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of a play in words like hi ho, hi ho. <laughs> so can you share a little bit about the, your story? <sighs> yeah, I mean, um, I've been as I've been doing it every night. I've been doing it every night for the last eight nights. Last night I had off. I'm doing it again for another two weeks, and um, I've never done a solo show before, and I've never done um. I show this many performances in a row since I was a kid on Broadway. And so my family moved to New York City when I was a kid, really young, from a small town in New Mexico. My dad was an actor. And we, um, it was crazy. It was 1967 and it was a wild, wild time in New York City. And my parents became hippieized, and we lived a really wild life. I r rode the subways by myself all the time when I was eight years old. And then I started acting. I got a Broadway show that was in a book called The Greatest Flops of Broadway. And <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. It was a musical version of Caesar and Cleopatra and uh, a very – amazing black actress played Cleopatra. Her name is Leslie Uggams and she's like 
still works. She's amazing. But weirdly, they cast me as her brother, little white boy. So they had to put on like full body makeup every day. Oh my gosh. My costume. Yeah, it was it was not a good show. It only lasted two weeks on Broadway. I know some some shows close overnight, but they had hopes. <laughs> and uh, then I talk about that and what is what it was like growing up and different experiences I had um, as a kid. And then I talk about moving to L.A. in the seventies and. The wildness of that, both positive and negative, including sexual abuse and um, um, lots of drugs. And so I, you know, just adventures and some love stories. And then and then I go to where in the 80s, ready during the AIDS plague and the um, Reagan era and the kind of. I don't know, dumbing down of everybody. Um, I started seeking something higher. I was also, I felt like an old man at 25. So I start to um, meditate and do yoga and eat really well. And then I ended up in this spiritual community following a guru, a new age guru who much later turned out to be a narcissistic sociopath, you know, mm-hmm. usual kind of thing where he couldn't, he couldn't handle the power, I think. And there might've well, also been some other stuff in there too. Um, We actually watched the documentary last night. It's called Holy yeah. Hell <laughs> um, about Budafield. And it sounds like it started out something really beautiful and magical and um, yeah. I could see why anybody would want to be a part of it. It was just about love and acceptance and inclusivity and meditation and running around in nature. And it, I mean, it started as something incredible. So how did you, how, like, where did it go wrong and, and how did you end up staying for so long? <laughs> no, all of these questions. I, and, and I have them too. I mean, these are questions that I've asked myself afterwards. Because you just feel like a dumbass, you know, in some ways. I, I I gave the the kind of juiciest part of my young life to that uh cause to so that I could become enlightened. And I think, you know, um I think there's fallacies in the whole program myself of the that whole Hindu tradition, Christian tradition, all the religious traditions which are all about like attaining something, you know, kind of going beyond the human into something divine. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I don't really believe in that anymore. I'm really into embodiment. I'm really into experiencing myself as a, as a full human, you know, human and spiritual experience, but within my body, there was a lot of body negation, a lot of trying to transcend. I kind of lived out here up here a lot for many years i mean i practiced mm-hmm. lots of meditation and lots of devotional practices mm-hmm. and i won't say that they didn't serve me in some way but they weren't really appropriate for my particular system are you saying so, they were teaching you to go outside of yourself and then now you've discovered that everything is within yourself well it was it was all about going within but it was going in through the third eye 
mm-hmm. and kind of the crown chakra basically and kind of negating the lower chakras as lower energies, that kind of thing. And I don't, um, I don't think that's appropriate. I think that's appropriate for some people, but I, I believe that we're all really different beings with our own journeys. And so for me, it was way more appropriate to be in my lower chakras because that's where I'm designed to, to uh, rest. Mm-hmm. And so like for me, it's really good to be sexually active healthy for me, uh, mm-hmm. both physically and spiritually. And I just, you know, I was negating that for many years. And mm-hmm. that just even that one thing was like, you know, not healthy for me. And so I began, I was really outside my body a lot. I would leave my body a lot. I wasn't in tune with my form. So you were in that, I'll call it a cult <laughs> for 25 years, right? Yeah. And so he didn't allow sexual activity, although there that's was a what lot. Happened. There was a lot of sexual activity. So, did you repress that for many, many years? I did, and and you know, it came out here and there, you know, as as it does with monks and nuns and whoever else is doing that. Usually, it just when you're young, it, it naturally your body just so you find a way to do it on the down low and you know in this secretive way, and it was very. But there was a lot of shame and a lot of um, um, we, and it was weird because the outward appearance of the of the whole community was very sex positive. Like there was a lot of sexual jokes, and it was like we made fun of sex, and it was, but in a sweet way, and it was like funny. It was it was just weird, and he would like let some people have sex. And other people not, and you know, guidance was for each person, but it was it wasn't accurate often. So mm-hmm. a lot of people who should have been sexual were not, and other people who sh- didn't need to be were, you know. So, mm-hmm. but it was all underground, you know. It's that kind of typical thing in spiritual communities. Very often, they just have this tradition of anti-sexuality. So that was a piece of it, you know. I was. I also had a role. I was a, a therapist for the group and I was good at it. So that also kept me fed in all the different ways, financially and otherwise. I had a very secure life where I was leaving a life that was very scary. Mm-hmm. Um, people were dying and so many things were going on. What do you mean that, people were dying? Well, of AIDS. When in I got the, in, in that community? In the community as well as outside the community. But Uh um, people would come into the community who were very sick. So I often helped people die. And um, there was not like euthanasia, just meaning helping them transcend or move on. Um, But yeah, it was, it felt like a secure place to be. And it was my fam, my new family, right? So you get used to people and you're with the same people all these years. And, um, it, it's, we were programmed all the time to believe that we were the ones who had the answer because we were having this direct experience of God and then through meditation and then everybody else in the world was asleep or dead. And, uh, so we, we thought that and we, Mm -hmm. and we avoided other people. You know, when we were, we were not inclusive. 
Mm-hmm. We were we were white. Um, we were, you know, youth oriented. We were there were no kids. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of things about it that we didn't think we were doing, but we were in retrospect. So yeah, I mean, with with him, he what in the documentary at least it was sharing how he put a lot of emphasis on health and fitness, but to the point of body perfection. Oh yeah. Um, and so how did that impact you and the community and, um, and self-esteem and things like that? Yeah, for me, I mean, I was always really skinny as a, you know, growing up and it was, you know, hard for me to gain weight and all of the main men in the group were all muscly, super muscle guys. And he would help them to do that. He was very muscular. He was a super gym rat and a ballet dancer and he wanted to do he wanted everybody to be that so the other guys were supposed to be that way or he would call them ugly or he would make there was a lot of fat jokes there was a lot of really really horrible disparaging things and he used to humiliate me pretty pretty regularly he wanted to keep my ego really diminished so he would um alternatively for me he would make fun of me and then he would like lionize me in front of other people as well spiritually like oh look philippe is so good he he doesn't care that i make fun of him mm. but meanwhile i was you know inside mm-hmm. it was horrible um but i was dropping my ego i was letting go i was trying i was coming out of my body and um and and he made fun of a lot of the women especially um often to their face about their weight, about their style, whatever it was, you know, just really, he wanted everybody to be beautiful. And they, in Austin, when we lived in Austin, they called us the beautiful people. We would mm-hmm. all go sit at this place called Barton Springs and we would all sunbathe together in our Speedos and bikinis. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it was is that image, really is that- is the image correct of everyone running around in bathing suits and speedos all the time with perfect little bodies? I mean, yeah, the the chosen people. Now, this mm-hmm. was, you know, there were a bunch of people that didn't fit into that, but they were more in service roles. Mm-hmm. Wow, you know, he would have them be like serving, doing service things, but and we were doing service stuff too. But we also had this high profile, some of us. But for instance, I was included in that group, but I always felt like I was an accident. Like I was the ugly one that got put in there because I was a lot skinnier than anybody else. I couldn't like put on all the muscle and he would make fun of that, but I could still be included. But when I go back and look at photographs or video of me, I didn't look that different from the other people. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, I could never be enough. And I've talked to other of these guys too, the same. And the Mm -hmm. women, it was like, well, he was he was in ballet, so he brought that whole ethos, mm-hmm. you know, and especially with women, you know, wanting them to be just these perfect twinky, like skinny little, you know. Mm-hmm. He, I think he wanted everybody to look the girls to look like teenage boys, and the boys to look like, you know, big fitness models. Was he different yeah. with the men than the women? Um, he was different because he was really fucking misogynistic. Sorry to, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was. He was. 
disgustingly misogynistic, but a lot of us didn't hear that. Mm -hmm. He would, he would make comments about women all the time. And he was very, very harsh with women. Mm -hmm. And so did that evolve or was he like that from the beginning? It came out more and more. Mm -hmm. It was, we were in, we were told by our elders in the group of which to me, there was like 10 only elders. God was it pretty early on, but that he was just joking with us to mess with our minds and that we needed to just let go and drop our, drop our, our ideas mm-hmm. because that's how masters are. You know, they're crazy and they do all crazy things to make you. So everything that he did, he could get away with. And mm-hmm. so we were trained to do that and we would just laugh at him. Ha ah. ha. You know, meanwhile, it was like going against everything I believe, but he would just say, oh, that's just your programming. Why are you defending these people? Mm-hmm. He would say that to me when I would be like, why are you being racist right now? You know? <clears throat> yeah. So if you painful. were, if you were a therapist in the group, were people divulging these kinds of things with you? And then how would you respond to that? They, it was not, not often that they did divulge these things to me so it was very weirdly set up where like half the people in the group saw the guru for therapy and the other half saw me Mm -hmm. and the people who saw me were more newer people and they would often come into the group through me or like people would send people to me who were in the group or he would send people to me and um so they usually didn't talk too much about him to me Mm-hmm. oddly enough like complaints or it, it rarely happened we were just supposed to work on their other kinds of issues mm-hmm. now i did work on issues with body image and stuff like that with a lot of women but it rarely rarely did i hear about his his stuff being aff- affecting people toward the end i did and it was mm-hmm. very disturbing and were you there through the collapse of everything? Like, how did that, how did that evolve really quickly, right? Within an email that went out to the entire community? Yeah. And within a, a few months, um, the whole thing started really falling apart. And I am a loyalist by nature. Mm-hmm. So I stuck around thinking that I could help him to wake up. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know the extreme of it until, so he ran away to Hawaii and then he invited me to come to Hawaii. Um, he somehow knew that loyalty thing with me. And so he, and I also had a new boyfriend who was my first boyfriend in many, 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 many years who had just come into the group. And then he went with the guru to Hawaii to be his personal masseur. Mm-hmm. So they invited me to come to Hawaii and I'd always wanted to go to Hawaii since I was a kid. So I said, all right, I'll try it out. So I went there. And by the time I got there, he had told my boyfriend not to be with me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and he started making fun of me all the time when I was there. And then about he did what? a few. About, about everything. having a boy, everything? Everything. He just was like hard hard i was one of the only people from the old guard left 
who was still there. And I was trying to be really direct with him and ask, you know, see how I could help him see what was going on. How did this happen? And, um, he just like messed me. He fucked me over <laughs> so many times. And finally I woke up in the middle of the night one night and in such horrible pain in my body. And it lasted like 15 hours and it was like the dark night of the soul. And I woke up. It was like, oh, this is really, he does not care about me at all. He's not here to take me to enlightenment at all. Never has been. I have been serving his ego, mm -hmm. not anything else. And so I confronted him and I bought a ticket, airline ticket away. <laughs> and then there were a bunch of people in Austin that were still well, first of all, he tried to he tried to get me back by saying that one night we were on a walk and he said, Philippe, I've never told you this, but I've always seen it would be me and you in the end. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I was like, I mean, it was so horrible. Too late. <laughs> and, and, he, and, he, and he offered me like the lead in a dance thing that he was creating. And he had never let me dance before. And I'm a dancer. That's like my main thing that I love to do. And he would never let me dance in one of his productions. And so uh, I, all this stuff was just such a realization. And when I got back, I was, I blew it off. I mean, there were some people who were still in Austin who were still in the group. Mm -hmm. And I just went to them all and was like, bah! <laughs> I became like the biggest bell ringer mm -hmm. in town of because it had it had just hit me personally and mm -hmm. I realized that there was no uh he was just trying to get rid of me because I knew I knew too much. And what blew him apart was all of these allegations of sexual abuse with the men in the community, correct? Yes, that is one of the things. And also just the lies, the many lies that he had told through the years about who he was, about where his initiation came from, about his lineage, about um, so many things, and the amount of money that he had been spending on plastic surgery that we had all been funding for himself and others that he was like experimenting on, like by sending them to plastic surgery before he got it. Just horror, I mean, just one after the other, allegation after allegation, hidden money, that he had been stashing that supposedly was for other things and, you know, just so many different things. And many people came forward and, um, uh, yeah, that was the main thing was that the sexual coercion was the worst. And I think I read that there was 12, I'm sure there were more, but 12 actual accounts of sexual misconduct with him and other men yet he's still out there wasn't charged with anything no because they were adults and it was it, there's this very gray area especially with these kind of things where there's been a bunch of gurus who, who have been taken to court or have been arrested and they can't be prosecuted because the people that they had sex with did so consensually mm -hmm. right so it wasn't rape per se they actually did have sex with them but they were coerced 
by a person who said that they needed it for their spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is what has what happened. You know, the Catholic Church, famous for all of this, um, and other religious organizations we've seen over and over again, including even like Buddhists. When that happened, I went, what the, you know, like mm-hmm. I thought if anybody, the Buddhists would not be, but there's a huge bunch of Buddhist teachers mm-hmm. who've been exposed. And uh, yeah, the power dynamic thing mm-hmm. is what blew it up. Yeah. So they couldn't really, we looked into it. A bunch of us looked into how we could, um, have him arrested, and there was nothing. He was so good at everything, manipulation-wise, that he covered himself. Yeah. Did anything happen with you and him? No, because I was, I was, I was damaged goods. I had already been. I had already had sexual assault. I had had a lot of sex with men before, and all of the men that he coerced were either pretty newly out and hadn't had a bunch of sex with men, maybe hardly any, or they were hetero identified and they had never had sex with men. So he wanted to be the first. It was like a virgin thing, you know? And not with any women that you know? No, no, no. He always talked about being bisexual and he had this girlfriend for many years before the Buddha field, but it turns out, that wasn't true. I he think the hardest. Say that again. He just basically liked straight men. Mm. Straight men. He wanted to break yeah. them. Yeah. Wow. Power thing. Yeah. And then how was that for you when you're in this community for, you know, almost 25 years and it is your family and then it dissolves basically overnight. People are running out of there. How, how was that? Uh, It was devastating. And I was, I was really broken in many ways, as many of us were, almost all of us, I'm sure. Um, Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know what to do, where to go. No, but none of us trusted each other by that time, because as much as we try to like, and even in Holy Hell, it's kind of blame the guru. It's co-created. So these things, we made him who he was in many ways. We wanted somebody to put on a pedestal. We wanted somebody to be our savior and to save us and to take us to this enlightenment. It took a lot of responsibility off of us. And so I think this happens a lot with humans. You know, we, there's somebody, we're having difficulty knowing who we are, or what we're doing, or, and we feel lost. And then we find somebody who says they know the way. And then we're like, yes. And we get on board. And, and then if they start to become human or weak, we, we're like, no, 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 no. You have to do this. You're, you're the way. You're the savior. You have to behave this way. I mean, it's really crazy. And, um, I remember him saying things like, should I really, do I really want to be doing this? Is this something I should be doing? We were all, oh yes, we want you to, mm-hmm. you know? So in the early years, we goaded him on and even convinced him to let us call him master 
and bow at his feet and kiss his feet and boil him and all the things. He used to always like drive his old beat up car and do all, do everything himself. And then he slowly started letting people do cook his meals and serve him and buy his clothes and do all these things. He kind of fought against it. Mm-hmm. So everyone this, felt this, a little responsibility in that, in that. I don't think so. I don't actually think very many people do. I, I did just because I'm that kind of person. Like I was like, I had to start looking at myself really deeply mm-hmm. to see why I had done this and what I had done to myself. And so I started doing a lot of therapy and a lot of healing and going to a lot of workshops. And I went to Burning Man and I moved to San Francisco. Like I had to like, and, and, and it's been uh, doing a lot of medicine work in order to really get to those places, which were part of it. And a lot of it is I had to take responsibility for my part in it. I've talked to other people and they don't really feel that way or they don't recognize it or they don't want to see it. Mm -hmm. Have you, have you kept in touch with people from the community? Um, The people who were involved in the film, I've Mm -hmm. kept in touch with more. And there's a couple of people who I'm friends with and some of them are a little bit surprising. Like they weren't necessarily people I was close to in the group. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, in, that's been really interesting. And I keep, we keep tag tabs on Facebook and stuff, but I don't, to be honest, in a real sense, um, they were my family and my tribe for a period. Mm-hmm. And I don't really relate to most of them at all anymore where they've gone and what they've come to. And it's just, we're all at very different places. And we, most of our relating is about the past. Do you feel like they've been able to heal and move past the experience? Some have, yeah. Some have, yes. Some have not. Do you think the ones that take a little bit of responsibility in what happened have healed, like that's helped with the healing or not? I think absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, some of the ones that people that I talk to um, have that quality. Mm-hmm. And they seem the most, yeah, we're just like people together, you know. It's not like we're trauma victims mm-hmm. getting together and going, oh, you know. To get out of the victim role into, well, empowering, yeah. empowering yourself, right? Yeah, because so much, you know, when the the damage that's caused by those experiences of being in a group like this is giving your power away. Like I mm-hmm. gave my power away completely to this person who not only that's not a healthy thing for anybody, I don't think, but also he could not hold it and he mm-hmm. abused it and manipulated it and used that power against us. So yeah, that's, it's very difficult. So unless you really, find a way to take that power back and then some, you know, really then keep finding ways to tap into the power that we all have and that we all are connected to. Do you remember the moment that you were able to tap into that power? (laughs) There've been a bunch of moments like that. Um, Hmm. Yeah, 
I mean, I've, I'm at a huge one right now. So this feels the most alive because I'm doing this show about a year ago. I had a really intense year. I guess it was the last year of COVID thing. And um, I was working on this show and I was doing a bunch of things. And I realized all of a sudden that I wasn't an imposter as a, as a performer and as a, as a creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I stepped out onto a stage for the first time, fully present mm-hmm. and in my power and in my mojo. And it was like, wow, like I had never, I'd never had that experience before. And I, and I've gone through a lot of, uh, deconditioning of, uh, trauma that I had had as a kid being on stage. Mm-hmm. It was so being in front of a Broadway audience of 500 people when you're 10 years old, there's no preparation for that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would leave my body at that time. I was like watching myself. So I had to go through a bunch of um, training with some different beautiful women teachers in particular to help me get back into my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was a long history of me disembodying. Um, yeah. And probably a lot of that could have begun with childhood sexual abuse. It's the only way well, you can get through something like that is yeah. to disengage and oh, absolutely. go outside. And that was, for me, that was more in my late teens. So I didn't have mm-hmm. the childhood abuse, but mm-hmm. it was more so. date rape. It was a date rape kind of stuff. And I think I was already doing it. Because I remember during one of those experiences, actually looking at it from above. One mm-hmm. of the rape experiences, yeah. Well, disassociation's a powerful way to get through trauma. It is. It is. Yeah. It's a. It's a gift. It's a gift to be able to do that. I think mm-hmm. I. Uh, yeah, it was just took a lot of work to know that I didn't have to do that every time I felt threatened in some way. And so you and Max have been together for a really long time. And that's so fascinating to me. How has that relationship created and evolved over all these years? Um, I mean, there's a lot of different layers to that. We both, we came into the relationship ready to have a real mature, equal kind of connection, a comradeship with another person. And when we first met, we were just friends. And then pretty soon after that, we started to, we started to date and then moved in not long after that in San Francisco around the time we met you, probably. Um, we may have met you maybe a year after into it, but, um, yeah, we just super well matched on the same spiritual. He had been in a cult when he was younger. He had. Yeah. And it's actually, he was only in, for six years, but mm-hmm. he, during the early part, but we just found out his, the cult he was in, we listened to a podcast and it was all about the cult he was in, which he hadn't thought about for a long time. And it's still going. Oh my gosh. And it's very similar to the one I was in, in mm. so many ways. Like the guru is very similar and yeah, it was crazy. Um, but we also had been doing this thing called human design 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a lover of human design. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we started, we both had started that hymn more seriously right before we met. Mm-hmm. So it really like dovetailed into a really great way to um, understand each other and our differences and the way that we operate in the world and what's good for us, what's not so good for us. Um, mm-hmm. And the ways in which we might not do well, so mm-hmm. that that has really helped, and we've really um, kept that going. The experiment of human design, mm-hmm. and now we we some, we do a lot of readings for people, and it's become part of our world. Oh, I didn't know you're doing uh, readings. I yeah, love that. and so i mean you've grown a lot in that time period and you've grown with another person i think that's pretty profound um and interesting and fascinating because he met you right out of when you dove out of the cult yeah and it was now about a year so i had done a bunch of healing at least i met him as a i wasn't wounded so much mm-hmm. which was good mm-hmm. I know I wanted to I wanted you to share more about being a sex worker and and what that role was and um how that fits into your to your performance. Yeah. So, I needed something to do, so I remembered that I was I liked to do massage and like I, I joke in the play I say I was in a in a cult and so there were a lot of great massage therapists because every cult has a lot of great massage therapists. It's just how it is. Yeah. And um so I had had tons of amazing body work. So I picked a lot of stuff up and I love to massage people through the whole years. So I, I just answered, I just put an ad in Craigslist and started seeing people. And then the sex work came naturally after that. Cause I was so repressed that I was fine with, I was like, oh, I was like a kid in a candy store in a way. So, um, and it was, I had done a lot of, good work as a healer. So I was able to apply that to it. It wasn't just me giving hand jobs or anything. It was like, I was doing tantric work and Taoist sexual healing stuff that I had learned and Kundalini work. And so I started applying that in the work and it was really satisfying to me. And I got really into my body. Like I was doing, I was doing this physical stuff and erotic uh, tapping into what I call life force energy, which is your your sacral sexual energy is the most powerful energy that we have in our body, which is, I believe, why all the religions and the spiritual people deny that and lower it and make it something to be afraid of, to be, um, to revile, to hide away, to be ashamed of is because actually if they control that energy, they control you because it's the most powerful energy. So meanwhile, society at the same time is like throwing sexuality at us all the time, but it's mostly to buy stuff, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And so this weird fissure between in sexuality where it's like what we think about all the time and we're not supposed to think about it at all. Right. And right. So, you know, it's everything just sells so, with sex, right? Yeah. So it's so strange because we're, we are obsessed with it. But I think we're obsessed with it is because we're hiding it. So, and what is your hope with, with your creation? 
what are you hoping to share to the world? Mm. So a lot of it has to do with um, body autonomy. So, so, you know, sovereignty of the body. This is my body. I sing this song at the end. Um, it's my body and my body's nobody's business, but my own. Right. And um, so that's one of the things that, you know, Hey people wake up. They're trying to take away your, your rights to your body again, you know, and some people are like, yes, for abortion rights and no for prostitutes rights. Like, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of disconnect. I'm like, no, everybody look, it's all, it's all together. Um, and I think just sex can be an incredible, empowering, beautiful thing just by itself. It doesn't have to be include romance or anything. It's actually a physical thing that happens in our body and pleasure is a great teacher and a great master. Um, that's one of the things, uh, so it's not 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 clustering shame in there. Yeah, let's like, yeah, I'm kind of a shame eradicator. That's part of my job in the world. <laughs> I love that. You know, and I know it well. I mean, I I adopted it's it oddly. I did not grow up in a shameful environment. My parents were wild, liberal, progressive hippie people who walked around naked and my mom made collages at a Playboy magazine and put them up all over the walls. So I didn't. <laughs> grow up with a shame thing, but I chose one. Mm -hmm. As an adult, I chose to go into a shame environment without knowing I was doing that. And um, so that's it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, a big proponent of that. Those so if the, people want to find you and follow you, how, how can they find you? Well, I have a website, which is philippeandrecoquette.com. And it's a crazy website that has a lot of different things that I do. I, I do a lot of different things for work. Um, I have like a list of like 12 things I charge by the hour and you can do pick one, pick one or pick them all. And yeah, so I'm also on Facebook as Philippe Andre Coquette and on Instagram and Twitter, although I don't pay a lot of attention to those things. Well, it's been so fun talking to you. I thank you so much for, for your time and for sharing your story. You've got an incredible story. And I, <laughs> and I always just love you. Just your energy is such, you've just got the most fun energy of that I know. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you. I love yeah. yours too. I felt like we vibed right away, mm -hmm. you know, with that, because you have great super fun, lovely energy. And oh, thank, thank you so you. much for doing this. I think that's going to be a really great series. I can't wait to see other stuff that you're doing and yeah. how it evolves. And yeah, yeah. So good. Yeah. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Philippe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's delightful. Thank you for listening to the Connected Community Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe. I can be found at www.nikkiyyoga.com, N-I-C-K-Y-Y-Y-O-G-A.com. Until I see you again next week, I hope you have a beautiful day.